Lord Jesus Christ, you are our King, and you do good things. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we might see you this morning. And it's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So I had a, a favorite professor of mine in college who loved to shock people. This was something that he did uh, all the time. Uh, he tells, would tell us stories of, of hiding behind closets, you know, when his wife would come into the house and he would jump out and shock and surprise her. Um, she hated that, by the way. Um, but also, whenever you walked into the classroom that he was teaching, he wouldn't welcome you with a handshake like a normal person does. Instead, he would smack you on the chest, and he'd say, great to see you, Rick. Come on in. Grab a seat. Grab a seat. He loved to shock people, and he was a former football player in his youth, and even in his 60s now, he's a, a rather large guy. And so you knew that when you stepped into his classroom, you knew two things. You knew that you were loved, and you knew that you were about to have the wind knocked out of you. Uh, it wasn't always a good and gentle welcoming. Well, he tells a story of this one time that he went to a conference with some friends. Uh, it was, uh, I, I forget exactly what the conference was about, uh, but he was at the hotel room he was staying, uh, that he was staying at. He had a roommate, and it was one of those hotel rooms where you've got like the beds in, in one section, and then with like a partition in the other, there was like a seating area with like tables and chairs with ottomans and things like that. Well, he decided to leave one of the sessions early and go back to the hotel. And he saw that his roommate's car was in the parking lot as well. And he thought, ah, so he's here too. He doesn't know I'm coming. I could surprise him. And so this professor, uh, he gets out of the car. He goes into the hotel room, rides the elevator up, goes down the hallway and comes to his door. And he slowly opens the door and creeps in, lets it shut very quietly behind him. And he starts sneaking forward, and he realizes that his friend isn't in the bedded area there. And so he sees uh, his friend's shoes, or his feet, resting on the ottoman. And then the rest of them he can't see. And he's thinking, oh, perfect. He's sleeping in the chair. He doesn't know that I'm coming. And so he sneaks forward, and he sneaks forward. And then as he turns around to look at his friend, he realizes that his friend is sitting there in the ottoman. His eyes are closed but he's not sleeping. His Bible is open in front of him, and he has tears running down his face. He discovered his friend having an absolutely sacred moment with the Lord. Well, this professor was filled with shame. He's, he, as later as he was describing it to us, he says, I might as well have walked in on him with his wife. It just felt like he was in a moment that he shouldn't have been in. And so he slowly backed out of the room and left without making a sound. You see, I think that this professor was telling us this story because he wanted us to absolutely to have moments with the Lord like this, moments when we're actually so consumed by God's presence, so consumed by his word that we're moved, that we can actually hear from the Lord. Well, right now in our calendar, we are in the season of ordinary, and I haven't brought this up recently because we've actually, our church has had a lot of uh, rather unordinary events happening. We've been at the lake, um, been on vacation, things like that. So perhaps for you, it doesn't seem ordinary, but I want to remind you, we are in a season of ordinary right now. Uh, the color of ordinary is green, is marked by our banners and my stole in the front of your bulletins. 
And this is a season, you may have heard me say this before, but this is a season that I like to refer to as a school of discipleship. This is a season in which we learn to pursue God in the seemingly uneventful and mundane moments of life. And so what we're going to be looking at for the next month or so is the book of James. Uh, This is in our assigned liturgical readings, and this is a perfect book to be looking at during the season of Ordinary. James is the brother of Jesus himself. He is the leader of the Jerusalem church. And his, his letter to the church, uh, to his community, reads very much like wisdom literature. You have a lot, a lot of series of short, pithy statements. Oftentimes they come in parallel, sort of speaking to each other. And so we're going to be looking at this book. We're going to be looking at it with the hopes of gleaning ordinary wisdom for the long haul. Ordinary wisdom of the long haul. Now, James, he's writing his letter to his communities to fan the flames of their faith. Nominalism is, is catching on there. There's people who, um, as you'll see in a little bit, who claim to have the faith but don't necessarily walk according to the faith. And James wants that faith inside of them to fan up. He wanted them to love the Lord with absolute dedication, with every fiber of their being. So in our reading today, I think that there's some three signposts that we have that can point us into a deeper relationship with God. Three signposts from James that encourages us to be totally in love with God. Totally in love with God. So the first signpost is this. It comes from that first paragraph, in verse, starting with verse 17. The first point is to love that loving God requires knowing God. Knowing or loving God requires knowing God, to know who he is. And this passage tells us every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So we're hearing here that every good gift comes from God. Whether or not you recognize it even, everything good that's happened in your life comes from the Lord. Every fruitful relationship that you've ever had, every moment of justice that you've ever experienced, any experience of peace that you've, that you've had in your life. Again, whether you realize it or not, every good gift in this life comes from the Lord. Good things are, in essence, a, a tap on the shoulder from the Lord, inviting us to turn around and to look at him and to recognize him as the giver. And I love the title that James uses of God in this passage. He calls the Lord the Father of lights. The Father of lights. In other words, he is this consistent source of of warmth and of illumination. Even though the sun and the moon and the stars, those move throughout the day, the Lord is unchanging. Even though the happiness of this life comes, but only for a moment, the Lord never changes. The Father of lights is like this pillar of light that comes down from heaven upon us, and he does not waver. Now, what has the Father done for us? Well, this passage tells us that he has redeemed us by the word of truth. The word of truth, that is the gospel. By sending his Son, the word made flesh, to dwell among us, to show us what it truly means to be human. In Jesus Christ, he dignified the marginalized, he forgave his enemies, and he, he redeemed us by the death of his, on the cross. He is the word made flesh. 
And this is an ongoing process, an ongoing thing that we get to experience. Each week we hear the words being proclaimed. Each week we experience, we participate in the word made flesh here at the table. So our Father loves us by giving us the word, but it doesn't stop here. I love this phrase that James uses to describe us. He calls us the first fruits. The first fruits. That's not really a term that we in our society use that much, is it? But this is a reference to the harvest festival that the Jews would have celebrated. At the beginning of the harvest, you would bring the first fruits of your crop into the temple as an offering of God. It's sort of saying that you're thanking him for that first harvest and trusting in further provision from God. There will be more harvest that's coming, is what you were saying to the Lord. And this is a sign that there's much more, much more to come. So what does it mean that we are the first fruits of creation? Well, what God is declaring through the redemption of our own lives is that we are a sign, God willing, we are a sign when we are functioning healthy of what that new creation is supposed to look like. One day God will transform all of creation and our lives are supposed to be evidence of what that gospel looks like when we've taken it in. The the lives of the church are supposed to be the signs of a much larger project that God is embarking on. So loving God requires knowing who God is. He is unchanging. He is illuminating. He brings forth the people, the church, by the word of truth to be a sign of what's to come. So my second point, loving God requires receiving God's word. Loving God requires receiving God's word. So when I was a teacher at Minnehaha, uh, I I oversaw the technology there. So I didn't interact too much with kids. I mean, there was a class that I taught, and so I learned some of their names. But on the whole, I I wasn't in on the classroom every single day. And and I remember one day sitting in my office and just hearing this loud crashing sound over and over out in the hallway. And I thought, hmm, I wonder how long that's going to go on. And it didn't stop. It just kept going. It kept going. And then I would hear some muttering and things like this, and I'm like, this is very strange. So I go out there. And there's a third grader who I had interacted with before. I'd I'd had him in class. Um, Sweet kid, but he also kind of had a tantrum. And I saw that coming out here. And he was just bashing those lockers in. And he was yelling obscenities. He was saying things, really hurtful things about himself uh, that was just really painful to hear. Well, being a part of the tech department, I look around and I'm like, oh, where's the teacher right now? And I didn't see any of the teachers around. And I thought, okay, this is, this is my moment, I suppose. I thought, you know, I can reset a cranky iPad, no problem. Resetting a cranky third grader, this is going to be a challenge. Uh, but thankfully, I'd, I'd seen teachers deal with these kinds of moments. And so I did what any other teacher uh, would do. I walked up to him. I called him by name. I got down on his level. And I tried to calm away his anger. I tried to ask him questions about what it was that, that made him mad. Turns out a girl in his room had called him a name and just kind of sent, triggered him, sent him into a spiral. Well, eventually a teacher came and we both were able to fully calm him down. And I was so thankful for that teacher, for that authoritative voice to come and to bring him back and re-enter uh, him into the community that he was in. And then she was able to facilitate reconciliation between him and the student who had wronged him. You see, he was this kid who had had his feelings hurt, and she was able to calm him down, bring him back into the community where he could then explore the beauty of God's creation. 
right? So what's so obvious about calming down an upset child? Why is it so obvious that that's the way that we calm down a child, and yet when we look at ourselves, we don't realize that that's why we ourselves might be missing out on some of the things that the Lord has to teach us? In this passage, James is calling, telling us to be slow to anger. He says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger is like a big roadblock that's getting in the way of our relationship with the Lord. Instead, he wants us to enter into the school of discipleship, into that, that classroom of God's love. So what is anger? Well, anger, it's like when patience runs out, right? It's when you're tired of waiting on God. It's when you want to take things into your own hands and you react with force and with violence. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a place for anger. I think that's why James says, be slow to anger. But it should always, anger should always be called upon when we have full alertness of mind, right? Because anger is this violent pride. It's this sense that I know better than God and I can enact the goodness of, or my perceived goodness upon the world around me. It's this violent pride. It is not the posture of receiving from God. Instead, the scriptures tell us to receive the word of God with meekness. With meekness. That is, with humility and quietness. In other words, if you want to receive from God, if you want to hear from him, if you want to interact with him and his word and, and listen to him, then make sure that your anger is put in its right spot. This is why in our liturgy, I love uh, one of the opening prayers that we say every single week. It's called the Collect of Purity. And Collect is basically a fancy kind of prayer. We say it every week. I label it. I don't think I do label it in here, do I? But it's that opening prayer uh, on page six. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. In other words, Lord, you know me. You know everything about me. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. Cool us, Lord. Cool us with the Spirit or with the waters of your Holy Spirit. Cleanse us. Calm us. That we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. And we say that every single week as we come in here, opening ourselves up prayerfully to hear from God, to receive his word. So thirdly, Loving God requires doing God's word. Loving God requires doing God's word. James doesn't want us to be just a hearer of God's word, not just to come in here and to listen to it, to be a doer of it as well. And this is a huge theme throughout the, the letter of James. For James, merely listening to God's word isn't enough. Later, he'll say, faith without works is dead. And he uses this really interesting um, illustration to kind of make his point. He says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror and forgets what he looks like. Now, for us, that's kind of a weird expression, right? Because we have mirrors all around us. We have mirrors in our bathrooms, on our walls. There's mirrors in elevators, which I don't really understand because that makes things really awkward in elevators. I can even on my phone download a mirror app uh, if I forget what I look like. We are keenly aware of what our eye color is, uh, maybe you have like a favorite ear, you know, you know the shape of your nose. Some of us are very aware of every scar, every zit, every, every blemish on our face. We know what our faces look like. And so this is kind of a weird illustration for us. But in James's world, this wasn't the case. Mirrors were extremely rare, and no one had uh, photographs back then. 
So if you ever wanted to know what you looked like in the ancient world, usually you would find like a still pool of water and look in it and say, ah, that's what I look like. My eyes are blue. They're not brown. Okay. Now, if you ever did catch a glimpse of yourself, you know, maybe it would be easy to forget what you look like because you wouldn't see that glimpse of yourself very often. You'd say, ah, that's interesting, but then you would go away and forget. Well, that's exactly what it's like for some when they hear God's Word. You may come to church. You may listen to the Word proclaimed. You may participate in the Word's um, presence at the table. But then when your week goes on, you pretend as if nothing ever happened. It takes no effect onto your soul. And James' words to us is very clear. He says, do God's word and you will be blessed by the Lord's presence. And then our passage ends with quite a punch, one that kind of pierces us right at the heart. He says, a righteous person with a foul mouth is a contradiction in terms. I don't know about you, but I hear that. I'm like, ugh. You know, I can let my mouth slip sometimes. Uh, maybe it's easy to tell jokes that are uh, inappropriate, off-color. A righteous person with a foul mouth is a contradiction in terms. In other words, James is telling us that the interior life and the exterior life are linked together. You can't believe one thing and act another way. They go together. And he says, true religion, religion that is aligned with the Father of lights, is this to seek power in the church. And when you pray, pray loudly and long so that everyone can hear you. Carry a really big Bible. And when you walk around, make sure you've got a huge cross around your neck. That's true religion. No, of course not. That's not what James says. What does he say? He says to seek the neglected, the widow and the orphan, the poor and the marginalized, the immigrant, the refugee. Seek after those who are lonely, you see, church, we are supposed to be the first fruits of creation. And our Father wants us to love the lonely, the abused, the abandoned, the sick, the imprisoned, the forgotten. That's what it means to be the first fruits, to be part of God's redemption of the entire world, to be a reflection of what the Lord is doing. So a few weeks ago, I went to a conference for church planters called Always Forward. It was a good time. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the things that I got to hear. One of my favorite talks was actually from our own bishop, Bishop Stewart. And I'm excited to introduce uh, our Bishop Stewart to you. He is a godly man, um, quite a character. Um, I'm really excited for you all to meet Stewart. If you go down to Revive with us in a month, you'll meet Stewart. Uh, he's, he's a wonderful person. But one of, the t one of the things that Bishop Stewart would tell us is that church planting requires deep skill work and also deep soul work. Deep skill work and soul work. You see, the temptation for church planters is to rely heavily on a lot of the published material that's out there about church planting. And trust me, there's a lot that's out there about church planting. And a lot of it is published with absolute confidence. Follow this and your church is going to be a mega church in no time. You know, that's kind of the promise of, of these books. In fact, I heard um, a famous church planting sort of guru guy say recently, we know how to plant churches now. We've been doing it for a while. We can plant churches really well. And it's easy for me as a church planter to hear that and think, oh, wow, I can just follow this recipe 
And this church plan will be financially sustainable quickly. You know, we'll have our own space quickly. You know, all these sorts of things. It's tempting to just follow the skill work. Now, those things are good. It's good to learn what other people have done. But if we lean only on our skill work, that will ultimately lead to destruction. In fact, these days, we have no shortage of spiritual leaders who have been relying on their exterior skill work of their offices, of what's to be said, with little attention to the deeper soul work that needs to be done. And this is true not just for spiritual leaders, but this is true for every single Christian. You know, it's tempting for all of us, for each of you and for me, to lean on the skill work of being a Christian. You know, maybe you've got memorized all the right songs, all the right hymns, you've nailed those, those are ingrained in your brain. Maybe you've read Celebration of Discipline and you've mastered every single chapter that's in there. You know, you know exactly how to fast, uh, like the best of them. Perhaps you know all of your Bible trivia, and maybe even as an Anglican, you've learned all the fancy, weird, obnoxious names for all the weird, fancy things that we have. You know, you've mastered it all. You've memorized the liturgy. In other words, it's tempting to beef up on our, on our Christian portfolio and neglect our soul to neglect our interior lives, to neglect our first love, the Lord Christ. Another speaker at Always Forward was talking about this same theme. He was talking about trying to cultivate these deep, intimate moments with the Lord. He was saying in prayer, you know, we, we, and we want these things. He's saying, you know, in prayer, we would want these moments, these deep moments in God, with God, where maybe he gives you a word that releases a particular struggle that you've had in your life. And we all want these moments that empower us to forgive others that are in our lives. He was encouraging us to seek after these pearls in our moments with the Lord that are so precious, that are so fine, that are so intimate that we can't even share them when people around us. It's just that precious, those moments with the Lord. This world is in deep need of men and women who love the Lord who know him, who walk intimately with him. James's world was in need of this, and so is ours. And isn't this what we want? Isn't this the cry of our heart, right? We want these vibrant moments with the Lord. We want to know that our prayers are being heard. We want our faith to be fanned into a strong roar. And the Lord wants this for you as well. The Lord wants this. He is on your side. He is wooing you into a relationship with himself. And that is what every page of this scripture is speaking about, not just the readings from today's uh, passage from James. So my prayer for us is that we may be a church that knows God, that we may be a church that receives the truth of the word, and that we may be a church that is doing the word of God as well, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of those around us. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, we profess that it is easy to follow you, your word simply by hearing, but not always by doing. I pray, Lord, that you would convict us of our sin, but yet you would welcome us into your embrace. I thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ for the ability to participate in your word, to listen to your word. Lord, embolden us with a deep passion for you. It's in your name and for your glory we pray.
Amen.